0: Happy May Day week, folks. Uh, Happy Cinco de Mayo week. Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Yep, that's where you you bring your independent voice, you bring your civil dialogue, and we have a great conversation. This is Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. And if you value what we do, we could sure use your support. You can visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website. You can sign up for our updates. Or, you know, if you run a small business or a nonprofit that's doing good work, nonprofits doing bad work need not apply. If you're doing that sort of work, got a small business, you can, you can also consider becoming a sponsor of this program. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines locally owned and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can check out Gateway's catering and floral services as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Groovy Goods. That's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods is a tribe brought together by Peace, Love, and Rock and Roll. Learn more at groovy-goods.com or stop in at 23rd and University in Des Moines or at the new store in Pleasant Hill. Well, I want to tell you some stories today, folks, and we're going to talk about some of the usual things we talk about in this, our program, but I want to start off with uh, some stories and um, I'm going to kick off that story by playing a song called Daryl in the Rain. I'll just play a piece of it just so you get a taste. Daryl in the Rain by Finbar Fury, and I'll tell you who those two gentlemen are in just a minute.
1: on the people But they never went away In an open field in Cambridge It was there I watched him play He sang songs of his homeland And of the valley that he loved Of the mountains and their wonders And the great sky that he hugged Oh, was his name As wise and as gentle as could be He played his music all over Singing his songs
0: for you and me. So I'm guessing that most of you, even those who might be aware of the incredible countercultural music tradition that arose out of the 1960s, most of you may not be familiar with either Daryl Adams or Finbar Fury. Now, maybe you could tell by the accent, but Finbar, and by the name, is an Irish musician. Daryl Adams is from Oregon, but his uh, primary fame and following was in Europe and there's a long story behind that and you can read some of that on Wikipedia or on his website uh, and Daryl is since he, he passed away oh, quite a few years ago now but uh, I want to tell you about the time I met him. It was a fascinating fascinating encounter back in oh, 1980 maybe and uh, before I tell you, though, about meeting him, i got to tell you what led up to it. I, um, I It always starts with a girl, right? So I was, I was traveling around Europe. I was hitchhiking around Europe. And I um, I had been staying in a monastery. I, actually, I started off, no surprise, folks, I started off by walking across southern England, northern France, ended up in a monastery and had a really bizarre dream. I had this crazy dream in which um, a I was... I was in this room with a, a woman dressed in white holding a baby, and this powerful force was coming at us. It was I couldn't tell what it was. it just it felt like energy piling toward me. and it felt like a very, very dangerous moment when suddenly this woman holding the child stepped in front of whatever force that was, and boom, the whole thing dissipated. and I was left with this great sense of love and purpose and whatnot. so. I woke, remembering the dream, and then, as dreams often do, it promptly left my my mind, and I totally forgot about it. And there I am hitchhiking through northern France. I end up in Belgium. I'm hitchhiking, and I get picked up by a woman, who um, that day I can't remember how she was dressed, but what I learned later is she always dressed in white, (laughs) almost always dressed in white. and uh, we were driving along, and we were talking about God and religion and the meaning of life. And somebody pulled in front of us, and it was one of those instant moments where she just threw out her hand to to kind of instinctively try to protect me in the passenger seat. And at that moment, I remembered the dream. It just flashed in front of my mind, and it was so clear, and it was so emphatically tied to that incident, you know. And I don't. What does that mean when you dream something that ends up happening? Does that, does that say something about time and space? <laughs> uh, and that maybe maybe Einstein is even more of a genius than we tend to make him out to be? Uh, it says a lot to me about that. I don't want to get into that conversation. But at that moment, um, that dream flashed in front of my eyes. And long story, but it was platonic. But it was also this, um, this, uh, this, this strong connection. And we had various adventures during the three months that I stayed in Belgium. Some of them didn't go really well. Um <laughs> but one of them, one day we heard about a guy named Daryl Adams performing not too far away in a huge tent, big open tent, uh, in a field somewhere in the Flemish part of Belgium. And I, I didn't know, I didn't know Daryl Adams from Adam. (laughs) Good one, right? Uh, and, but I thought, well, let's go. He's, he's American. It's uh, it's folk music. I love music. Let's do it. So we went and, um, the, uh, I can't remember there was a charge to get in and that's fine there should be a charge to get into a concert uh part of my problem was i had zero money but um i also was very interested i said i'd like to meet this guy i'd like to meet this guy and so we wandered around to the back of the tent before the concert and there he was sitting there just you know getting his banjo tuned and um preparing for the concert and i said um hello are you uh are you daryl adams he says yeah I'm, uh, I'm Ed fallon i'm from uh I'm from the States. And he was oh, he was just happy to meet somebody from back home, even though I was from <laughs> pretty darn far away from Oregon. He was happy to meet somebody from back home. And we got to talking, and we had a good little chat there before the uh, concert started. And it was a... It was a, there was there were, I don't know, a thousand people in this massive tent. I'm, I'm not sure how many people, but he had a huge following in Europe and he lived in Belgium. The reason he lived in Belgium was eventually uh, through various travelings around and performing around Europe, I guess starting out in England, he had um, he'd met a Belgian woman and they married and he had a daughter and I met his daughter. I never met his wife. I met his daughter. She was I think about 12 or 13 at the time. And um, as is, as is often the case in small European countries, uh, she spoke four languages. She spoke, of course, Flemish, French, German, and English. Uh, Daryl, who had been living in Belgium by that time, I think for about fifteen years, spoke one language, English. <laughs> he never learned. He never learned a word of Flemish or French. Um, <laughs> And uh <laughs> even, even during the three months that I lived there, I picked up enough Flemish to have, you know, a basic conversation. Now they already had a little bit of French as well. I I guess um I guess it's not uncommon for some Americans never to learn a single word of anything but English. But anyway, he certainly was able to captivate Europeans with his music and the stories he would sing about about the land back in the US, about his love for the the mountains, um for his passion for the environment uh, these stories and and this these Im- these images were, were captivating to the European audiences and we were talking and um, and uh, he was saying you know I mean we talked about 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 a lot of the stuff that he writes about in his songs and we must have talked for 15 20 30 minutes I can't remember but he said toward the end he says you know I'm really tired of what I'm doing I, I really I really don't want to do this anymore I said, well um, i I got some advice for you I says he says, What's that? I said, go out there and make a total bollocks of the concert just 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 mess up everything, just just sing badly, play wrong notes, make fun of the audience. dang, dang you'll never have to do it again. i said this is, this is easy. And he thought about that <laughs> and I realized that i I was, I was on the cusp of ruining an entire concert for 1,000 people. Um, <laughs> but I, he, really, he really was tired. He was tired, and he, and he didn't want to do this anymore. And he looked at me and thought, no, I can't do that. And, you know, I'm really glad he didn't take my advice. But the funniest moment was the, uh, the, the moderator, or the, the, the MC got up there on stage, and in, I think in a combination of Flemish, French, and English gave a powerful introduction to Daryl and said, and now, introducing Daryl Adams. And Daryl walks out on stage, his banjo banjo strapped to himself, and he gets up there in front of the mic and he starts picking out a tune and he turns around and he yells. I mean, he yelled pretty loud, but I'm guessing that because he was yelling at me and not at the audience, nobody else could hear you. He yells at me and he says, I wish I'd made an effing million bucks like Frank Sinatra so I didn't have to do this S- any, and I'm doing that for the benefit of the FCC. Again, I wish I'd made a effing million bucks so I didn't have to do this S anymore. <laughs> and <laughs> I didn't know whether to laugh or cry, but uh, Annika, my Belgian friend, were back there and just um, taking it all in. And we we never bothered to go to the front uh, of the tent. We just sat in back and enjoyed the concert from, uh, from, the, from the back. <laughs> and... Uh, It it was, it was captivating. It was, um, his music is really powerful. If you have not heard of Daryl Adams before, it would not be bad to check it out. Um, his music is, uh, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share another story later in this program about another musician from the 60s with you, but, but, um, you know, Troubled Times probably produced some of the best music and, uh, and we're 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 in a, we're in another troubled time and it'll be interesting to see how history reflects on the art and music that come out of the troubled time we are we are currently navigating our way through presuming we can navigate through it in one piece or at least in a collection of pieces that can be reconstructed into something resembling normalcy <laughs> we'll see what happens but but anyway the um just just another another a, a bit about the um my time in Belgium uh, again. I was there for three months. That was not planned. I was, again, I'd walked across England. I walked across part of France. I was staying at various monasteries. Started hitchhiking. Met this gal and uh, Annika, and I invited her to come meet with me in Greece. And we were t- I always wanted to go to Greece. Greece has been my the the one country in Europe that I've always been captivated with since my my teenage years, my early teenage years. And I've never made it to Greece. I was on my way there and was expecting Annika to join me when I got a letter. Again, this was before cell phones, and I had no phone access otherwise. So I had to count on a, a letter arriving at a predetermined location for me. I got the letter and said, and in it Annika said, I've heard bad things about Greece. Why don't you come back here? And we'll go to Scandinavia. And I said, ah, Greece, Scandinavia. That's all the same to me. Let's go to Scandinavia. So I went back to um, went back to Ieper uh, in Belgium, and um, we were preparing to go to Scandinavia. Um, she's from a very conservative family. The parents were uh, just devastated at the idea that their daughter would travel anywhere with 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 a man from America. They, they didn't they didn't dislike me. They didn't dislike America. They just disliked the idea of her daughter, her unmarried single daughter, traveling with another man, um, with a man. So we set out, and uh, about oh, about 30 kilometers away, she breaks down. <laughs> and, uh, and we end up uh, going to the home of uh, a born-again Christian preacher. I should add, she was a born-again Christian. Um, that should have been a red flag for me because, you know, I have kind of a much more much broader take on spirituality than, than, that, uh, that perspective. But we ended up at this, um, at this, uh, home with this preacher. And, uh, I stayed out. I stayed, I stayed out in the car while she went in to talk and cry and try to figure out what to do. And I remember sitting under a bridge. It was a bridge, uh, with, I don't know, two, three, two or three lanes of traffic, maybe four lanes of traffic going overhead. And, uh, My nails needed filing, and so I sat there, and I used the concrete under the bridge to file my nails. Again, I was a guitar player, so my goal was to get them to be in the right shape for guitar playing. And I used the concrete to file my nails while I'm sitting there and thinking, what should I do? This is really getting out of hand. I really wanted to go to Greece. I came back because somebody said they wanted to go to Scandinavia. Now they really don't want to go to Scandinavia. She's a born-again Christian. This is, um, not, this, is, this is an awkward fit. What do I do? And I think I was about on the verge of um, walking out from under that bridge and putting a note on Antica's car and saying, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm going to take off now. And about when, uh, when I was ready to do that, she came out of the house and, and said, I've talked to my minister and I've talked to my parents and my parents want you to come back and spend my six weeks of holidays, vacation, six weeks with us in Ypres, and without giving it any thought at all, and without really kind of being sensible, I said, okay, <laughs> so I did that. And um, yeah, the story took more uh, twists and turns. Somewhere in that time, we went to hear Daryl Adams. Um, we had a bunch of other interesting adventures as well, including visiting a, a, a community for uh, handicapped adults that was fascinating, a place called Larch in northern Paris, northern France, rather, just north of Paris. And, um, you know, I, the, whole, the whole experience in Belgium was fascinating. But uh, whereas I only lasted three months, and, again, it was a great three months, I, in retrospect, it was a wonderful time, amazing people, uh, incredible hospitality, and, um, and just a real wholesome, real wholesome demeanor to the entire community that I got to know there. And, again, to top it off, this great experience meeting Daryl Adams, um, I hope, again, that you will um, take the time to uh, learn about his music. And I'm going to uh, exit this segment of the uh, conversation with a tune uh, that, uh, that he wrote, one of his own tunes. And uh, again, I remind you, this is Ed Fallon. Uh, we've got to take a short break, and when we come back, we've uh, got more conversation for you here on the Fallon Forum.
1: I saw it all as part of us to know and share alike with a universal willingness to know and do what's right. To understand our brotherness and stop this awful race, let our children grow in peace, know their lives shall not be waste. You could say first there is a mountain, then it seems that mountain's gone. But then if you take another look, she's been there all along. You can be just like that river as it laughs along its way. Or stand beneath the
0: shadows that takes the sun away. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally-owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community.
2: You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist, Dr. David Drake, helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com.
0: Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, our niche here is more important than ever. Please support what we do. You can uh, sign up for our weekly blogs, updates, Uh, spread the word, of course, and you can also go to the Fallon Forum website and make a donation. Uh, Better yet, if you are a uh, sponsor, a a small business owner, a nonprofit, uh, become a sponsor of this program. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact David Drake, Family Psychiatry.com. Thanks also to Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Uh, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. All right, so sometimes, uh, again, I'm People say I've got a face made for radio. Haha, <laughs> I like that expression. But you know, I, 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 uh, I have a attire designed for radio. I, I dress the way I do because I, I have reasons for it actually. But people see how I dress sometimes and think, oh, you must be a college professor. You know, I've got that little little Irish cap on, the tweed jacket, and so you know, I, I sometimes have that conversation where I say, no, I'm not a college professor. If I live long enough, I never will be, and. Uh, <laughs> Although I did, I did have a college professor who really wanted me to become a college professor. But I, um, I, I dress the way I do because that's, I, 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 my heroes dressed that way. And, you know, heroes, a lot of you, when you ask a kid who their hero is, oftentimes it's, a, it's some fictional character wearing a cape uh, with incredible superpowers. My heroes growing up, and I, and I, I'm not exaggerating this. My heroes were were Irish farmers, and that may sound silly, but when I was a kid at age eight, and then uh, all the way through my, you know, for the next ten years, I would go to Ireland every other summer, and um, and I was just uh, in awe at my uncles, um, my neighbors, the the. The folks who farmed for a living and knew so much about how to build a reek of turf, for example, or how to cut and dry turf, which is what's going on in Ireland this time of the year, or how to build a haycock, um, how to milk a cow. These, these sound really easy, like easy things to do. My uncle, my uncle John, for example, uh, once had a job when he was younger where he would milk 20 cows twice a day. Now, if anyone listening has milked a cow by hand, I'm not talking about a machine. If you've done it by hand, you know that it takes one incredible wrist muscle to do that. And uh, I would milk a cow a day, <laughs> or maybe sometimes twice a day, when I lived in Ireland. I could not imagine milking 20 twice a day. But that's what my Uncle John did. Uh, there were uh, I remember once sitting around, uh, my uncles Tom and John were very excited because Sharkey was coming. And I don't know, I thought the name, first of all, the name Sharky, very, very cool, right? Uh, and I thought that was a nickname. I thought maybe that was his first name. Turns out it's his last name, and it's a fairly common name in that part of Ireland. But Sharky was coming. Sharky was coming. And everybody was excited. I I still have no I, no recollection as to why. Maybe he was going to help with the hay. <laughs> but anyway, I, I saw, I, I envisioned this this big man, this Sharky, big man, um, you know, strong, strong. Uh, uh, you know, maybe maybe even a shark-like nose. I didn't know quite what to expect, but then uh, I heard the call. Sharky's here. He's arrived on his bike, and in walks this teeny little guy, <laughs> this little fella, uh, Sharky. And uh, didn't say much. Had a great smile, and yeah, he was dang good at making the hay. But the guy who really, the, you know, uh, these guys became my heroes because they were so good at what they did. And what they did seems so meaningful to me. It seems so much more meaningful to care for animals, to plant potatoes, to make fuel out of out of stuff you dug out of a bog, to um, cut a field of grass and use that to feed your animals for six months of winter. That to me seems so much more powerful and meaningful than a lot of what passes as you know as as meaningful activity in today's world. And again, I'm not demeaning anyone's profession, but to me. As a as a as a young kid, and then later as a teenager, and then as a young adult, that stuff really impressed me, <laughs> and um, I learned too that it's not you, not anybody. I when I when I was in my late teens, and uh, maybe even early twenties, and I remember helping my cousin Joe Moffat uh, make haycocks. And again, when you made hay when you made hay by hand, and this was back into the '80s. Uh, after that, it started becoming more mechanized. But uh, you would rake the hay into rows, to kind of dry it out, and then eventually you'd make it into these small little, about a foot tall, handcocks they were called, maybe just a foot tall. And then another day or two of drying, weather providing, you'd build those into a haycock. And those haycocks would be, you know, maybe uh, six feet tall. They'd be six feet tall. And you would um, tie them down with twine. And then you know, within a couple months, they'd sink to maybe three or four feet tall. And then the and I remember I remember trying to build a haycock, and uh, my cousin Joe. I remember him being very encouraging, but also laughing a bit when I finished my first two haycocks, and we noticed that they were they were pretty lopsided, (laughs) they were pretty pretty uneven. But the the real the real hard part about making hay in the old way is what happens once you bring all these haycocks in from the field. What do you do with them? Well, you build a huge haycock, this massive haycock. And that thing is, uh, I don't know, 12 feet wide, 10 feet, 12 feet wide, maybe wider, and um, maybe 15 feet tall. It's huge. And if it's hard, enough, it's hard enough to build a smaller haycock. To build a big one like that, it's an amazing amount of uh, talent. And so the guy that everybody wanted to come and help them build their haycock was a fellow named Martin Mannion. And he lived down, Martin lived down at the other end of the field, beyond the bog. And you, you would go to visit his place. And you, were, you knew that you were, you were in the presence of a farming artist because uh, his garden, where he grew potatoes and everything else, had these beautifully manicured grass pathways in between all the different sections of the garden. His turf reek. The reek is is how they would they they called it a reek when they would stack the turf. The turf reek was every sod was exactly where it should be. There was nothing out of line. It was all designed so that the water would run off, and that the turf below the first surface would stay dry all winter long. And his haycocks again, no tilt at all, perfectly made. So one day Martin Mannion is down to help us make the make the uh, the giant haycock. And we've got an ass in a cart bringing in the uh, bringing in the the uh, the, uh, the hay from the field. It would go up and, and load up one haycock at a time, bring it back in, and uh, then we would we would we would we would schlep it onto this um, this huge hay pile. And Martin would direct the operation, making sure that we were doing it right. And and the guy had an amazing. He was joking all the time, teasing us, uh, you know, cracking a cracking a joke here and there. And um, at the end of it, when you, when you got to the point where the haycock was, was again, I think about 10 or 15 feet tall, and rounded at the top, that's where you would get out the rushes. And the rushes were um, a thick reed that, w- rushes were also used to thatch roofs in Ireland, and these rushes were used to thatch the top of the haycock so that the water would always run off and the, the hay inside would stay dry all winter long. And... Uh, you know, these, these people were my heroes. <laughs> I me mean, call that silly. I don't know. But that's why I wear an old tweed jacket and an Irish hat because that's what my heroes wore. I guess if I'd grown up being enamored with Batman or Superman, you'd see me walking around with a cape. But, um, uh, you know, I guess again, most kids who have those superheroes, and I admire that. I think that's really cool, really cute. I've you know, got, got a grandkid who's, um, whose superhero is Spider-Man. And um, pretty awesome when he, when, he, when he plays Spider-Man. I'm pretty sure he's going to grow out of that. But uh, it's not a bad thing to have heroes. I know some people say, you know, heroes are silly, heroes are stupid. Just, um, just you know, just live your life, be yourself. And, you know, that's, of course, you've got to do that too. But it, it, it doesn't hurt to have people that you admire. There are people I admire in the political realm, uh, in the spiritual realm, in other realms as well. But the, the people who really formulated my passion for farming were these dirt poor Irish farmers whose techniques of farming back in the 1960s, 70s and 80s resembled the US back in the late 1800s early 1900s that's that's how far behind Ireland was at the time and again i you know there are certainly advantages to the advancements that have been made personally i kind of miss those days i kind of miss those days when you needed an expert like Martin Manning to come and build the big haycock that would keep your cattle fed throughout the winter. You know, and I, um, just another reflection about Ireland uh, that, that, that to me is very, very formative for me. You know, when, when I lived in Ireland uh, in 1984, and again, I've spent quite a bit of time there, but in 84, I lived there for almost the entire year. And we got there early enough, uh, March, or February 28th, in fact, to Plant a really big garden. And the, the, the plan was to stay there. The, well, the plan, the plan was, I, part of the plan was to move there, but that never materialized. But we did stay there the whole year. And um, we were told that you've got to spray your potatoes, and they sprayed them with a chemical. And uh, we weren't inclined to spray our potatoes with chemicals. And they said, well, the alternative is you can use something called, called bluestone. And bluestone was basically copper. And, you know, it was kind of harder to work with, um, maybe not as as totally effective, but the idea was you would spray your potatoes six times a year. And so I got to asking, so why are we doing this anyhow? Well, to protect from blight. And so we, when, was, when was the last time we had an outbreak of potato blight here in Roscommon County? No one could remember. It hadn't happened. <laughs> it hadn't happened. And what I realized was that the the, the incidents, the, the the blight that killed the potato crop back in the eighteen fifties and again caused the the death or emigration of nearly half the country, that that that, that left a scar on the collective consciousness that that, that, that existed, you know, through the eighties, nineteen eighties. Over a hundred years later, people were still bearing the scars of that incident. And again, to be clear, the only reason the potato blight happened was because the English wouldn't let the Irish own land, and they wouldn't let them have any access to land that was any good. And so when you're trying just to survive, you grow potatoes year after year on the same ground. And as anybody who grows food knows, you cannot grow the same crop over and over again. And even here in Iowa, corn and beans, they rotate those crops. So you, But again, because they were growing potatoes year after year in the same place, they were they they, they were open for disaster and it happened. The blight came. And uh, you know, it, it just it's it's amazing to me when you think about it. Things that have happened generations in the past. I mean, that for me is six generations ago. And yet I, you know, I I still I, I still feel some of that angst about the loss of potatoes. I mean, Kathy and I will have a crop of tomatoes that might not do very well or beans or lettuce, you know, right, this year looks like spinach is struggling. Okay, well, big deal. But you know, potato crop struggles, that hurts. And I think it's because there is this deep connection to that experience of blight that, that went on for several years back in the mid-1800s that caused people in Ireland back in the 1970s and 80s to spray their potatoes six times for a fungus that either didn't exist or existed so rarely you know that it wasn't going to be a problem. So, you know, if you ever get to Ireland, you got to go to a place called the Famine Museum in Strokestown in Roscommon County. It is a powerful experience because again it makes it clear that it makes it clear that the potato the 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 famine, the Irish famine, the great hunger was not a biological event, it was a political event. It was it was enabled by imperialism. It was it was exacerbated by the callousness of the British occupation that decided that well you know maybe um, maybe letting the Irish die is not such a bad thing and they probably didn't utter that exactly in those words but that's basically the conclusion they came to and um, you know I, it's it's uh, it's horrifying when you think about that that and and again there there's some <laughs> Human history is just full of so many wonderful moments and then so many horrifying moments, and the Irish potato famine is one of them. Um, we have horrifying moments going on right now, not just in Ukraine, but in Yemen, Myanmar, several countries in Africa, Central America. There are, you know, there are, there are problems that, um, that uh, we need heroes to address those problems, and again, my heroes were for a specific time and place. I, I don't know if, if um, Martin Manning's ability to build a haycock or my uncle's ability to milk 20 cows would do much to help the struggling people in Ukraine or Yemen right now. But um, there, there are people who have answers to problems. And uh, we need to pay attention to those people. We need to revere them. Uh, not not in, a, in, a, in a silly kind of way, but in a reverential way, uh, and we need to be willing to uh, to learn from them and to incorporate their attitudes in our lives, folks. This is Ed Fallon again. We've got to take a really short break here, and we will be right back with um, with more conversation in just a couple minutes.
3: Oh, the prairies they grow small. Over here, over here, Oh, the they grass they
2: Groovy Goods is
0: your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace love and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrum and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry located in Des Moines East Village. And you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And thanks to our Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has cared for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet. And the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's architecture by synthesis. You know, speaking of heroes, a group that I regard as immensely heroic right now Are the uh, men and women fighting fires across the U.S.? And uh, there are more fires than ever before, and there are more firefighters than ever before. But unfortunately, um, you know, as often happens with people doing the hardest and most important work, they're not uh, being paid as well as they should. And they're certainly not getting as many breaks as they need. And we don't have as many people doing it as we need and uh you know we're we're not quite at 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 um at wild, at, traditional wildfire season hasn't started yet but as we know right now is wild it's it's wildfire season year round anymore and here we are you know i think it was april 6th that the um that a, uh, a fire the uh, the the calf the calf canyon fire started in new mexico um and how did that start? Well, you know, it, it, there's so many different ways things can, fires can start. A lightning strike, of course, a careless campfire, or as we saw happen last year, a gender reveal party that got out of control. Um, of course, arson is a problem. Uh, this one's a new one to me. Um, a prescribed burn set intentionally to clear out small trees and brush to keep fires from, from, from happening Started the started the Calf Canyon fire, ouch, <laughs> and then that 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 fire kind of ran into another one, and now they're one big fire. You know, and uh, again, what are the scientists saying? Well, there it, it's pretty clear. They they make it really clear that the climate crisis is turning wildfires into a year-round problem, and again, especially out in the U.S. West. Although we recently had a fire in Nebraska. Which is amazing to me, you know, given that Nebraska is not that different than Iowa. And I have a hard time envisioning how a fire might take off here. But again, the problem is you got higher temperatures, um, soils that get all dried out, and then you've got you've got this this landscape that's just ready just it's full of kindling. And on top of that, you got these crazy winds. I mean, that's one of our problems here in Iowa this summer, the spring rather. The wind. We have had one of the windiest Aprils ever. In fact, if you look at the data out there, this has been studied, since 2010, wind velocities have increased um, by from, seven mi- from an average of 7 miles an hour globally to 7.4 miles an hour. That may not sound like a lot. It is. It's significant. And we're noticing it here, and Kathy and I will probably talk about this in the next segment. We're noticing it here in terms of its impact on our plants on our urban farm but a much more serious impact is the impact it has on wildfires and again these heroes i'm going to call them heroes who are fighting these fires need to be treated better they need to be lionized they need to be paid very very well and they need to be given enough breaks cuz the last thing you want to do is you're 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 out on a fight you're out fighting fire and you're exhausted and you know you can't focus as well as you can when you're well rested everybody knows that I mean, if I was trying to do this talk show on just two hours of sleep, I would make even less sense than I'm making right now. Uh, <laughs> I'm teasing myself because I don't have a guest with me to do that today. But <laughs> so this fire in New Mexico is—it's—it's um, uh, it's forced thousands of people from their homes. And I just—I just looked up. I mean, I'm—I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm, I'm doing this program on uh, May second. And I just this morning looked at the updates. It's not going well. It's uh, it's fast spreading. And, um, the villages of Ladue, Mora, Cleveland, uh, Las Vegas, not, not Nevada, Las Vegas in, in, uh, in, um, New Mexico. These are about 40 miles Northeast of Santa Fe. And, uh, a lot of people in those villages have been evacuated. Yeah. And, uh, Again, the winds. And I, again, I remember that. When I, when I visited, with I had a, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience. I had, I had lunch with the, the elders of the Laguna Puebla people when I walked across the, uh, the country with the Great March for Climate Action. Several of us had lunch with them. And the one thing I remember more than anything, when I asked, what have you seen different as climate change gets worse? And there was not a single person there denying climate change. They all got it. And they mentioned that the decreased snowpack on the high plateau of New Mexico, but more than anything, they mentioned it's windier. And yeah, wind is a problem, especially when you've got fires that, uh, that are blown by those winds and in this case, merge with another fire. Now, the, um, this, uh, this fire is not far from a village called Truchas. And Truchas is a has a very dear spot in my heart because it's one of the uh, villages we walked through on the Great March for Climate Action where uh, we had um, an amazing experience. Now, uh, four of us set out early. It was myself, uh, Steve Martin, Shearer Wolberg, and uh, Tony uh, Pisano. We set out early from uh, uh, from our base camp camp. Um, we climbed, I think, somewhere between two and 3,000 feet. It was a long upward climb. We walked for nine miles. Uh, and I, I feel a little silly because um, I had assured uh, people. I said, oh, yeah, Truches, look on the map. It's a big town. We'll, we'll, um, we'll have breakfast there. Just, you know, grab whatever you want here, quick, you know, granola, you know, some, some bread, whatever. We'll have a nice sit-down breakfast with bacon and eggs and whatnot when we get to Truches. And so we're walking up this long, this long climb, and it's beautiful, quiet road. Hardly any traffic on the road. The scenery is just absolutely fantastic. I remember seeing this little town off to the right as we're going up up the mountain, and it, it was just—I just wanted to melt into that town. It was so beautiful, green and lush. Um, it's probably towns like that, or, that are burning right now, that are being evacuated. Uh, we we got to Truchus, and um, the first house we came to was, uh, there was a woman just stepping outside to put out a a, um, a sign indicating that the art gallery that she managed, that was connected to her home, was open. And I said, well, good morning, and uh, we exchanged pleasantries, and I said, hey, can you tell me where the cafe is here in Truches? And she looked at me and kind of shook her head and said, there's no cafe in Truchus, Sorry. I said, well, what about, uh, where's the convenience store? She said, well, there's, there's no convenience store either. And I'm like, uh, oh boy. Uh, <laughs> and Steve, um, you know, I thought Steve was about ready to kill me because I kind of said, oh, I'm sure I'm sure there'll be a place there. I, I, I should have done a little more research. Didn't have good phone service. Just based on knowing the size of True I thought it would surely have a restaurant. It'd surely have a convenience store, but no. So uh, either, you know, me looking a little bit dejected or Steve looking like he was about ready to strangle me, um, caused the woman to say, well, why don't you guys just come in and we'll, I'll make you breakfast. And so we went in and she and her husband, um, they made us breakfast, uh, eggs, uh, um, toast, uh, hash browns, everything but bacon. (laughs) But, uh, it was um it was a truly generous moment, and uh, and then we got to talking about the world, about climate change, about um, the environment, and uh, about art. And Truchis, um they weren't the only art artists in Truches. There's uh I was amazed at how many different people were doing amazing, uh, uh you know, brilliant work in this little town up in the mountains, maybe seven thousand feet up in the, in the in the mountains of New Mexico. And now to think that you know these fires aren't that far away. That's, you know, when you've had a personal experience with a place, when you've had a connection with a place, this stuff means even more, of course, but we shouldn't need that to be concerned. Um, the, other, the, other, the other place I think about as I imagine these wildfires, you know, continuing to wreak havoc in that area, a place called the Lama Foundation, uh, not named after um, the animal and not Buddhist. Apparently, Lama was Portuguese for mud. <laughs> that, that's uh, and that's uh, I, you know, that's how that's how this place got that name. Um, it was founded in nineteen sixty seven, actually. And uh, we were there in again twenty fourteen. And in nineteen sixty nine, I was told. I remember being told this story. Um, in 1969, 1996, rather, nineteen ninety six. Twenty years after it was st- established, the Lama Foundation. Um, on May 5th, this very week, this very week, uh, what's that, um, 30-something years ago, uh, a huge forest fire um, just came raging through the Lama Foundation. It didn't destroy all the properties. Uh, uh, the, the, the dome complex, as it's called, the, uh, there was a kitchen um, and a community center. Those places survived, but they had to rebuild a bunch of other stuff. But it was amazing that anything made it through. But again, this is back before fires got to be as serious and bad and as prevalent as they are now, back before the wind velocity increased as it is doing now. And yet, this place, Truchus, uh, all these other incredibly um, beautiful uh, towns and communities. I mean, there was another community I remember visiting on the march called the Buffalo Center. I believe it was called the Buffalo Center. It had been founded back in the '60s, and the um, a lot of the uh, countercultural types who had founded it, it were still there. Uh, they were getting on in years, but they were still there, and they were still, um, you know, living their uh, spiritual lives and also their lives committed to as much self-sufficiency and uh, independence as possible. Uh, they treated us to an amazing uh, lunch, and then a service in which they blessed each of the marchers before we set back out on our way. You know, so many places like this that are in the path of these fires. And again, it's not just New Mexico, it's Colorado, it's, um, it's uh, California, all over the place. Uh, you know, I think, what to do? You know, obviously, we need to stop, we need to get off fossil fuels as quickly as possible and stop making the problem any worse. But even without doing that, we have, we have issues, we have issues. And again, I I think it's a shame that I what the uh, what the folks doing with the way this fire started of course going into intentionally set fires to try to minimize the prevalence of kindling and ground cover that makes sense I don't know what they did wrong but uh, that's one thing we can do uh, we can stop building in sensitive areas we can um, uh, one other thing we can do is certainly start paying our firefighters better and stop expecting them to work and create work crazy hours that just exhaust them. you know these are these are some things that we can do and I know that there has been increased appropriations for fighting these fires well maybe that needs to be even 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 more seriously increased uh, And you know again when you start getting fires in Nebraska, you know, I, mean, I at what point, I, I you know, I go, again, I woke up in 2007 when I saw this happening, when I, when I realized what was going on with climate. And I don't know what it's going to take for others to understand that, yeah, we have a huge problem, but um, maybe fires in Nebraska will do it. Maybe fires threatening the special places that we love. And I've got a friend here in Iowa who has a really strong connection, family connection to the town of Paradise, California. And maybe you'll remember the name Paradise, California, because Paradise was torched badly in the campfire a few years ago. You know, there are very few places in the western part of the U.S. that are immune from the threat of fire, and especially as conditions dry out, especially as winds increase. So, you know, whatever it's going to, and again, maybe, you know, you know, maybe it's the, Tornadoes that came through Iowa in early March and killed six or seven people and destroyed a huge swath of of, of land across central Iowa, just uh, just eight miles from where I'm sitting doing this program. You know, maybe it's the increased salination of of the uh, coastline. Uh, I, I don't know what it is, but at some point, everyone has to wake up and say, "Yes, this is a problem. I need to do my part to address it." And that's, you know, that's going to look different for everybody. You know, one thing we're doing here, Kathy and I are doing, is trying to uh, localize our food production. We're going to talk about that in the next segment, of course, but we're also going to talk about the broader issue of how, you know, how crop production, generally speaking, is being affected in the new climate era. Anyway, folks, um, thanks for uh, tuning in to the conversation. I will be back after a short break. Um, Kathy Burns is going to join me for our farm and food segment. And again, we'll pick up on the conversation of how crop production is being affected by the changing conditions in the new climate era. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design build services for high performance, low maintenance, affordable homes and buildings owner Mark Klipscham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet, and he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com.
2: At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766.
0: Back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Remember, you can support our alternative to the nasty old shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or if you own a small business or a nonprofit. Become a sponsor of this program as well. Speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateways Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Also check out Gateways Catering and Floral Services. Again, that's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Kathy Burns joins me. We are going to be talking about oh, crop production in the new climate era. Kathy, welcome to the program. Thanks. Yeah, so
2: <laughs> Yeah,
0: we are we're like in the middle of thinking about, whoa, the climate. new climate era. The windiest, coldest, most unpleasant April I've ever experienced.
2: Well, we're out of April, barely. Barely. We're recording this on May 2nd, and uh, April was amazing and frustrating. Um, (laughs) But I guess that'll happen. But the problem is that these things are happening, unusual climate, extreme climate happening more and more frequently, not just here, but everywhere. So what do
0: you say to somebody who says global warming? Why is it colder there?
2: (laughs) Well, that's the reason they changed the term from global warming. The, the average temperatures are rising, but we don't feel that every day. It's, uh, it's the total effect of all this crazy climate that we're having because we're altering the earth so badly. And, and it, might, it might be colder than usual. It might be warmer than usual, but it's just things are changing more rapidly than they ever have.
0: So what do you what do you notice, uh, in our little niche here in Des Moines, in terms of the impact of this uh, changing weather pattern?
2: Today's changing weather weather yeah, pattern, or yeah. overall?
0: Well, overall, I guess. But
2: okay, well we've talked about this. Um, we've talked about it on the program before that we plant our garlic. What at least a couple weeks later yeah. than everybody used to. than was the common wisdom because it's not getting cold enough. Um, in late October or mid October to do it. Yeah, tends to wait till November. To yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait till November. To but do I mean, it. now
0: you know. To me, the the wind has been the, the biggest uh, hurdle to overcoming. We've had so much wind and such hard winds. I mean, over 30 miles an hour sustained some days. Uh, and it was a 27 mm-hmm. mile an hour wind. Uh, you you were out of town, of course, and I and I was trying to manage mm-hmm. uh, 260. Uh, tomato plants and I left them out too long. Mm-hmm. I didn't think of how strong that and it just it just beat the crap out of those plants.
2: They looked a little sad when they I got back, but sad. I appreciated all the care you gave them while yeah. I was away. That was a lot of work. Well, the the point is though that this really all started, you know, at years ago, when hundred years ago and more, when human beings decided, you know, what we can do better than nature. We can we can make things faster, stronger, bigger, taller, more productive, and it's the more, more, more um, attitude that got us into this position. Some of that is understandable. People are hungry. Um, Some scientists decided to start trying to create some ways to make foods grow better, and um, it did. There was uh, some mechanization uh, happening. This is when industrialized food production began in the last century um mechanization fertilization irrigation specialization all of that led to increases in food production not just in the U.S. Ag- but ag- around the yeah, world Yeah,
0: agriculture really is what right kicked off the uh, food revolution yep But yeah. the, the
2: bad news is that those same you know quote improvements to crop production they've just rendered our planet unsustainable um, as far as growing food in the future it's it's changed the the chemistry of the whole thing. Yeah. Well,
0: some you know some will say that well we can genetically modify our way out of this. We can we can engineer plants that are more, for example, drought resistant, uh, plants that are stronger. They can stand up in wind better. I mean, because we saw we saw entire cornfields that were just blown over mm-hmm. uh, in derechos, of, uh, and we all I've also seen that happen with hail damage, but. Right you know so what do you say to people who say well yeah we can we can we we can science our way out of this
2: well um, i we we both read an article in the guardian in april about some of the effects of climate and you know industrialization on crop production now and what has happened is that when human manipulation of all the different varieties of foods that people used to grow uh, there used to be so many varieties of different foods, hmm. um, but they got science t- to death in, in, in <laughs> and, and making them produce more per type. That it rendered those seeds, you know, incapable of reproducing themselves. So um, it's just there are there are really high yield monocrop, but there's a really narrow genetic base, and they. By virtue of all the, the manipulation, they need a lot of fertilizer, they need a lot of chemicals, they need mm. a lot of water, they need irrigation. Um, those are the things that are leading to just, not just depleted soil, but climate chaos in general.
0: So again, with, with, uh, with agribusiness recognizing climate change as well and proposing the GMO solution, what's the alternative? If, you, if we're not comfortable going in that direction, what, what do you, what, what's your take on the alternative?
2: You mean? I mean, what's the way out of? Yeah, what's what's the way? What, what's the way
0: to deal with the changing climate that doesn't involve, you know, massive modification of uh, of the genetic makeup of, uh, of of key you know key commodity crops like corn and well, beans and large, cotton? Well, some large some large scale
2: farmers are going back to systems that are going to work better for the future. They are diversifying their crops, similar to and they use this analogy in the Guardian article. Um, An investor, if they're going to invest in the stocks, they diversify their Mm. portfolio. Mm -hmm. They don't just invest everything they have into one thing because something's going to fail sometimes. So farmers that are already diversifying crops, using uh, more earth-friendly techniques, are leading the way to put the earth back where it belongs so that we can have food into the future. And then, of course, what we do here at Birds and Bees Urban Farm, and a lot of people we know here in Des Moines and elsewhere are doing is Relocalizing food production, renormalizing urban food production, not making it a really shocker that someone's growing food, say, in their front yard. So, um, or that
0: they own chickens. <laughs> or, there, there's still places, yeah, there's still yeah. towns that don't allow chickens.
2: And Des Moines plant, is thankfully not one of them. <laughs> and planting a lot of variety of crops, yeah, and yeah. being aware that there's, uh, you know, there, there's a whole world of excitement out there yeah. if you just kind of look at what, what what is beyond the typical tomato, pepper, onion kind of thing. There's so many other things to grow. So rota- that gives you a better chance to rotate your crops, too. And
0: that was part of the problem in, in you know, the previous conversation in this program about the I- I- Irish, uh, you know, Irish uh, potato famine is uh, farmers, uh, poor Irish Catholic farmers were forced to grow one crop. Mm-hmm. They had very little land. They had very marginal land, and they had to grow whatever they could to maximize production on that limited space and uh and so yeah uh, you know monoculturing never works real well you know and honestly in Iowa you know, uh, most of our land is committed to basically a two crop monoculture mm-hmm. it's a rotation of soybeans and corn and even uh, you know you know back in the 1800s early 1900s there was a five five-year rotation I believe mm-hmm. there was hay and, and hay and oats were part of that rotation mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, even even tomatoes, for example, and this is hard for home gardeners, but you shouldn't be growing tomatoes in the same plot any more often than once every, what, three or four years.
2: Well, add to that the fact that four, four companies control 60% of the global seed market. And that means farmers who want to diversify are really at the mercy of yeah. what's available from them, unless yeah. they can really get hyper-local and start to work, maybe, you know, barter seeds with uh, somebody yeah. you know. Yeah. So it's, there's so, a way yeah, out
0: in the in the new climate era. We're going to see more and more uh, impacts that we can't even predict. But whatever happens, resilience and sustainability and small scale operations are, uh, you know, probably the best way to best way forward. Yeah, right. <laughs> if we can, if we can spread that word in a in a climate where in a, in, a, in, a, in a in an atmosphere where big is is still revered as best, you know. Yep. Anyway. hey, Kathy, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks to Kathy, to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Determan, Charles Goldman, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners. Thanks to our nonprofit partners as well. And remember, your support for this program matters a lot. You can go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. Thanks again, folks, and we'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.